Hi, I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And this is our True Crime Podcast. Evil Pudding. We are a husband and wife duo. I'm ex-military and law enforcement. And I'm a true crime professional fanatic. And we will together <laughs> will cover the most depraved and most shocking offenders and events that you probably have ever heard of. That's right. Only the most evil are covered here. So join us once a week. As we serve up some evil pudding. Welcome back to the True Crime BNB. Hello, this is episode 35. I'm Bailey. And I'm Beth. And this week, we're going to touch on some sensitive topics, but important topics. Let's First, go. I am going to start out with the definition of a sundown town, okay. which seems far in the past, but it's not that far as we've... Nothing is far enough in the past. Nope, not as far as we think. So the definition of a sundown town is, according to Wikipedia... An all-white municipality or neighborhoods in the United States that practice a form of racial segregation by excluding non-whites via some combination of discriminatory local laws, intimidation, or violence. Okay. And they were named Sundown Towns because it was not safe for the general black community members to be in that town after sundown. Otherwise, they were at risk of being attacked by their They probably weren't safe in those towns before to begin sundown with, yeah, but all. especially after sundown, it became very dangerous for them. It's disgusting that these exist. Yes, and they've existed in our lifetimes still, unfortunately. With that knowledge in mind, the town we're going to talk about was a sundown town in rural Indiana. Okay, we're back to Indiana. Back to Indiana. We had none, and now we've had two. The woman I'm going to talk about today is named Carol Marie Davis Jenkins. She was born October 19th, 1947 in Franklin, Indiana. That's not the town we're talking about, though. Carol was a black American, and her parents separated soon after birth. Her father was not really in the picture. However, when she was a toddler, her mother, Elizabeth, remarried to a man named Paul Davis. And so Paul is her stepfather, but is her actual father, too. Okay. If that makes sense. Yes. He took over the role as the father figure in her life, and they moved all together to Rushville, Indiana, where they ended up having five additional siblings, so her half-siblings, but she's the oldest of all of them. Got it. She graduated from Rushville High School in 1965, and she got a job at the local Ford plant because her father, Paul, had worked there. He said that she was a very, the way he described her was, she was very kind, always by the book, very cooperative, almost to the point of being naive. Okay. And I think that probably a lot had to do with being in rural Indiana as a black family you just kind of keep to yourself. Acquiesce to whatever's yes, going on. You just, but also it's a trait of firstborn children. That's true. Very responsible. Very, yes Rule sir. Rule followers. No ma'am. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She got this job at the local Ford plant, and unfortunately, a couple years after that, there was a big union strike, and the place got shut down temporarily. And unfortunately, she's a young adult. She needs the money. She can't just wait for them to come back into business. Right. So she took the next job that was available to her, and now at the age of 20 years old, she decided to start selling encyclopedias door-to-door. Okay. On her first day of this job, and being the very compliant employee that she wanted to portray herself as, Carol volunteered wanting to impress the boss. She agreed to take the route through Martinsville, Indiana, which was a very notorious white-only community. It was a sundown town in Indiana. Okay. She, however, decided that she would be safe enough because she was going with three of her coworkers that day. So she had another woman from her town of Rushville, the same age as her, who was also black. 
And then she had two other men who were white from Indianapolis that were going to be accompanying her on this journey. Okay. Were they all traveling in a car together? They all traveled to and like dropped each other off at the same location. And then they were going to take the same route, but separate. Kind of like you take that side of the street, I'll take this side of the street. And then we'll meet back at the end. And all right. I'll ride back together. Okay. Got it. She felt safe enough. It was middle of the day. They were just going to go meet back up a couple blocks away and then head back to Rushville. However, once she was out of sight of her coworkers, it seems like maybe she was going a little bit faster than they were and people just weren't answering the door, so she just moved on faster. I would not doubt that that's true. Mm -hmm. That they would say, oh, there's a black woman at my door, I'm not answering it. Yeah. She got a little bit ahead of her coworkers, and suddenly two white men in a car spotted her and began following her. She immediately realized this was happening and started walking a little bit faster, and they started verbally harassing her, calling her the N-word, saying all these horrible things to her. Just trying to do your job, Mm. Jesus Christ. Feeling unsafe, she immediately ran up to one of the houses next to her and started banging on the door asking them to come out just for at least a witness to what was happening. Right. And this house was owned by Donald and Norma Neal. And I know your first thought is, oh God, what are they going to do to her? We love the Neals, okay? Okay. They are probably the only good people at this point in Martinsville, Indiana. Well, there might be others, but they probably aren't vocal about it. Exactly. These are the two that had her back. The two immediately took her concerns seriously and took her into their house. Oh, wow. And they called the police to get somebody out there just to at least confront these guys in the car, get them to go away until she could go back to her The guys in the car just waited outside while she was in their house? Yeah. Donald said that he looked outside, saw the exact car she was describing, and they were just parked on the side of the road with their headlights on just waiting for her to come back out. They had no shame. It was just... So the police came for 10 minutes and confronted the guys. They said, oh, yeah, we were following her and we screamed some things at her, but we'll leave her alone now. And they took off. And so the police were like, okay, our job's done and left. However, that didn't sit right with Norma. And she decided she was still uncomfortable with Carol going out on her own into this neighborhood. And so she walked a few blocks with her further into the neighborhood to try to find some of her coworkers, see if she could at least get her off to somebody else that's safe. Right. Unfortunately, they couldn't find her co-workers, and finally, Norma turned back to go back to her house and said, Hey, Carol, it's getting dark outside. It's like 8 o'clock at night now. I don't feel comfortable with you walking around aimlessly trying to find your co-workers. There's no cell phones, you know? So she told her, stay with us for the night, and then in the morning, we can drive you wherever you need to go. Wow. What an angel she was. She is a sweetheart. Carol declined, though. Oh, Because she didn't want to get in trouble. She didn't want to get in trouble, and she even said to them, I've been enough of a bother. You've been so nice to me. I don't want to hold you up for the night. And she decided to walk back. She said it was literally like two, three blocks away is where the car was waiting to take her back to Rushville. So she said, I'll be fine. This is the exact time they were going to meet up with me there anyway, so I'll just head to that spot. So why couldn't Norma have just walked the extra two or three blocks with her? Because it was literally like straight down the road. She just watched her from the front porch. Okay. Walk down. As she arrived, she arrived a little bit before her co-workers got there. So this is about 8.30 at night. Oh, that's turned into a long day. I know. Well, they didn't get there because they had other routes before this, but they didn't get to this neighborhood till 4.30. Okay. Underst- so understood. 8.30 at night, that's the last time that Norma saw Carol. She thought, okay, she's at where she needs to be taken care of. However, very soon after that, it's not known exactly what time, probably about... 30 minutes later, same men circled around again, finding Carol walking alone, and this time they did get out of the car. Of course they fucking did. Mm -hmm. 
One man, the man in the passenger seat, got out of the car and chased her down, held her arms behind her back, while the driver got out and proceeded to stab her in the heart with a screwdriver. God damn it. She's just walking down the street. What the fuck? And these fucking people think that they have the right to kill her. Never even seen her before in their life. No idea who she is. Yeah. It's devastating. It is awful. They stabbed her just once in the heart with a screwdriver. The two got back into the car, and Carol was left alone and bled to death in the middle of the street. Oh, my God. And at this point, she had been running away from them, so she was found only one block away from where she was supposed to be meeting her co-workers. After the news got out, Paul, Carol's father, worried that the sundown town of Martinsville, the police would not do justice with her case, which is very likely and a legit concern. Yeah, as, and even though they knew exactly who these guys were. Yeah, they the whole town, gossip, everybody knew. He proceeded to ask the FBI for help to get involved so that it would be more not biased in protecting their own community. However, this request for the assistance of the FBI was, of course, denied, and the Martinsville police refused to have them come on board with the investigation. Once the town found out that the Neals had attempted to allow Carol a safe place in their home for the night, they turned on them. Of course they... Which is not shocking, I know. No, it's not shocking and it's disgusting. And their home was continuously vandalized and they received harassing letters and death threats for many, many years after this. I do not understand what the hell is wrong with human beings. I do not understand it. I will never understand it. And that's why I know it's like the bare minimum to go out and walk with this girl and stuff like that. But in time like this, in a place like this, that was incredibly brave. Of course, it was huge. And if she had stayed with her, she would have probably still been alive when her friends came back to the car. And that's the thing. Carol was so trusting and naive, whereas the Neils knew this is not a place for you to be. Yeah, it's not safe for you here. It's... And, and she just, did, she just turned him away because she's like, I'll be fine. oh, it's scary, I know, but it'll be okay. Yeah, that doesn't She help. was optimistic. She was hopeful. Mm-hmm. She didn't know not everybody has the heart she has. Soon after this, Carol's case became completely forgotten about in the town of Martinsville. Yeah, because she was nobody to them. They didn't mm-hmm. care. And, you know, swept under the rug. Oh, pff, just did some random girl. Did the Neils stay there? They stayed there. Yeah. The Neils, at this point, they were very young, like the same age as her, 20s-ish. They had just gotten married and moved there three months prior. Oh, I was imagining an older couple. No, yeah, they were young, just like her, and that's probably why they were so progressive and so like, right. oh, we aren't from Martinsville, but we know the people of Martinsville, and this and is they're a good place monsters. for you. Yeah. All of that happened 1968. In June of 2000, an anonymous person called Carol's mother, Elizabeth, giving her the name of one of her daughter's killers. So she kind of assumed it was somebody from Martinsville that had been quiet this entire time, but they didn't reveal their identity. They did say one of the killers was Kenneth C. Richmond, who did not live in Martinsville at the time, but he lived in a farm just outside of Martinsville. And he was also a very well-known racist, had ties, and had been arrested in 1985 with aiding and abetting the KKK and different related crimes. So it was a pretty good ringer and clue. Carol's parents, Elizabeth and Paul, took this phone call and decided to use the rest of their retirement money to hire a PI because they still didn't trust. Martinsville is still a little bit corrupt. I'm just going to say that right now, and I don't care who comes at me for it because they are. I think a lot of rural Indiana is still racist and corrupt. Rural Midwest in general. Yeah. 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 So they hired a PI of their own. After hearing about this, the Indiana State Police decided they also wanted to reopen the case and put two cold case detectives on it. 
The anonymous source, the same person who had called Carol's parents, decided to send a letter to the Indiana State Police in 2001 saying that they needed to speak to Kenneth Richmond's daughter, Shirley, because she had been a witness to Carol's murder. Okay. Police got a hold of Shirley, and as it turns out, she had witnessed Carol's murder. She wasn't the one who had done this, but once she was taken in by them, she said, yeah, I, I absolutely did witness it. She was seven years old at the time. Wow. I have mixed feelings about Shirley. I understand you're seven. Clearly, she didn't have anything to do with this, but after you turn 18 and realize that's what happened, you probably should have said something. Well, was it her father that did this? It was her father, yeah. So, she was probably terrified of her father. Well, she's estranged from him at this point. She hasn't talked to him since her 18th birthday. She left and never looked back. I mean, just think of all the little children who are abused themselves mm-hmm. at seven and never tell anyone. And that's why I mixed feelings, because like, yeah, you probably should have said something, but at the same time, you have your own trauma to work through here, and I yeah, get that, too. she was victimized just by having witnessed it so what an awful thing so she told the police what she believed to have remembered that night because again she was seven her memory could be a bit and it was a long long time ago long time ago yes what she believed to have seen was her father and a friend of his had been drinking and riding around town just shooting the shit chugging beers and whiskey with her in the back seat Naturally. Naturally. And she watched as they harassed Carol, and then as they came back around, harassed her some more, and then stabbed her. Her story was confirmed as she knew things not ever released to the public, such as her manner of death, the murder weapon. The police hadn't even known it was a screwdriver yet because they'd taken it with them. And they didn't have anybody probably who had a clue about how to determine what type of a murder weapon it was? No, they did. They knew it was a stab wound. They just didn't know if it was a screwdriver. They knew it was about the size of a screwdriver, but that was never released to anybody. So the fact that she was like, yeah, he took a screwdriver out of console and did it, you know. I think today they would probably be able to say that was probably probably a screwdriver. Yeah, yeah, you're right, though. Like in 1968, the medical examiners were not exactly what they are now. And she also knew the exact location where Carol had died and the exact outfit that she had been wearing that night, which was very distinctive because she was wearing green khaki pants, a white sweater, a brown jacket, and then a yellow scarf. You wouldn't just guess that outfit. No. Shirley told them that when her father had gotten back into the car after stabbing Carol, he had laughed and said, she got what she deserved. For what, you motherfucker? For what? For existing on a planet where you don't happen to like the color of her skin? And this is how much Carol's life was worth to him. He then gave Shirley $7 to not say anything. I think with that $7, there was an implied threat as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because look how easily I killed her. Mm-hmm. You try to get me in trouble, little girl. And she meant nothing to me, so... Yeah. Guess what you, I could do to you. You turn on me, and guess what's going to happen to you. Yeah. So, as a seven-year-old... I can understand. Yeah. I mean... That's... What a piece of shit. So, it was later revealed, though, that the person who had anonymously called in all these tips to the police and to Carol's parents was Shirley's sister-in-law. So, her now-husband's sister, who she had confided in late one night about having these memories. And so, she knew this had happened, and she believed Shirley's story and said, well, she might not talk about it, but I need this guy's name to be out there before this guy dies and never gets in trouble for it. May 8th, 2002, Kenneth C. Richmond was finally arrested at his nursing home in Indianapolis. He was 70 years old. <sighs> However, they found him incompetent to stand trial. Of course. So they couldn't charge him. And August 31st, 2002, he died of bladder cancer in the hospital. His accomplice to this day has still never been revealed. 
They never... So whose car was it? Was it Richmond's it was car? Yeah, they confirmed that because Don Neal had memorized the license plate number and given it to the police, and they'd never done anything with it. Wow. So the Martinsville police had this information yeah, they when probably, it happened. It probably was one of the police members that were the accomplice. You know what I mean? Probably like, so. Fucking hell. Probably so. It's like that guy whose wife was run over by a drunk... He and his wife were oh, hit by the... Oh, that morbid just covered. I don't remember their names, but... Yeah, and... The wife died, and the police came, scooped up this drunk guy... Took him home. Drove him home, standing around while his wife's laying there dead, and they're laughing and joking the... with this guy, and then drove him home. Uh, yeah. It's probably... Don't doubt it for a second. They at least knew the guy, uh, and just decided not to look further into it's it. It's just so sickening. But just to show you that Don and Norma Neal are awesome people. <laughs> in 2014, Don and Norma Neal laid out plans to build a monument in Carol's honor in the town of Martinsville, but were shut down by the county. Jesus Christ. And told they couldn't put a they monument so there. They are so fucking shameful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can people live with themselves? Yeah, even as recent as like 2000, I believe it was the mayor of Martinsville was on record saying the N-word in a public press statement. It's just disgusting. But yeah, so they haven't changed all that much, to be honest. But they tried. And finally, in 2017, Carol's town of Rushville did honor her by naming one of their parks, Carol Jenkins Davis Park. So that was 2017. And then finally in 2017, Martinsville decided, oh, we'll place the memorial rock in front of the city hall and call it Carol's Memorial. And I mean, I, at least they did something, but you only did that because now you're getting called a out. A memorial for. rock? It's a memorial rock. I don't even Is know it if it has her name on it. It's literally just like a rock in front of the city hall. Oh my God. Like, oh, that's Carol's rock. Like, okay, guys. Thanks for the It effort. probably came from Richmond's farm or Richfield or whatever his name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I looked up the statistics of, like, their population, all the census records. Yeah. And they had a population of 10,000, and all of them were white. Literally nobody of any other race lived there. Yeah, and if they yeah. ever had, probably chased out immediately. I can't imagine why anyone would even have any desire to live there, except as a flip-off to mm-hmm. Martinsville. I could see somebody moving there and saying... You're not going to tell me I can't live here. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, your life there would be so miserable. Why would it be worth it? Well, it's like the people who moved across the street from the Westboro Baptist Church and painted it rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're like that bold, I guess. Yeah. Then. I mean, you have to basically buy an entire street of houses in Martinsville and move in all the strongest people that you know. Get an iron fence around your house, too. So- Get that doll from Squid Game. Oh, the, the laser eyes. <laughs> Anybody that comes close to your house, you just... Immediately zap. You zap, you vaporize <clears throat> them in the front yard. Oh this is God. coming out on the anniversary of Carol's murder, so just take a minute of your day if you have a second. Think about her. Where did you find information about Carol? Because I know that that can't have been an easy story to have researched. Most of it I found off of Wikipedia, because she does have a page there. Mm-hmm. But there were also... But it was cited, right? It was cited, and then some black documentary filmmakers who tried to go into Martinsville and do their own research, but they were literally... Shut down. They went to one of the diners and asked about the murder in 2015 or something like that, and the owner told them to get out and that blacks weren't allowed in his diner. They wrote up their experience in Martinsville, and that's where I got a lot of Yeah, dude, Mr. Diner Owner, you're really making your town look like it's not guilty of Mm -hmm. this. 
Holy yeah. crap. That's just... And I have a few pictures, so go to our Instagram. I'll send them to you because I'll probably forget, like usual. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's only, like, two pictures of her. But... Bailey always says, I'll put it on Instagram, and then three days later, I'm like, hey, are you ever going to put that on Instagram? <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess I should. It's been sitting in my phone for, like, two months. Please tell me your upper story because I need to not cry anymore. My story is of uh, the heavy nature and the reason for it, mm-hmm. but the ending of it is very positive of what this woman has done. Okay. So I have to kind of start at the end. On January 5th, 2022, Friederike Fechner was awarded the German Federal Cross of Merit by German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier. Mm -hmm. So before I tell you what this award was actually for, let me give you some background information about Friederike, and then it will all make more sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Friederike was born in Hanover, and she studied cello at Musikhochschule Hanover and Basel Music University, as well as, oddly enough, the Indiana University School of Music in Bloomington, Indiana, USA. Interesting. There was no intended crossover here, but... Oh, we're just Midwest people. (laughs) She also married an American-born ophthalmologist named Martin Fechner. Mm Mm-hmm. During her musical career, she has focused on performances with different chamber music ensembles as well as chamber music orchestras. Since 2013, she's also taught cello at Musikhochschule Stralsund in the small town where she and Martin had relocated in 1994. Mm-hmm. Friederike and Martin, and I'm saying Martin because he's an American. Okay. <laughs> if, it was, if he was German, it would be Martin. Mm-hmm. Friederike and Martin kept their eye on an enigmatic building at 89 Haugeiststrasse from 1994 until 2012 when they finally purchased the building. They'd always just looked at it and thought, wow, that would be really cool to renovate that building. Mm-hmm. At the time they bought the building, it was near ruins as it had been neglected for 70 years since the end of the Second World War and it had been unoccupied since the 1970s. Stralsund is located in the part of Germany that used to be the Dede Air, or known in English as the German Democratic Republic, but more widely known as Communist East Germany. Mm-hmm. This okay. part of the country wasn't revitalized and rebuilt the way that West Germany had been in the years after the devastation that was brought by World War II. Friederike and Martin Fechner worked very hard to restore the building on Heilgeiststrasse to its historically correct whole. They wanted to understand the history of the building and they wanted to make its renovations and restoration historically accurate to honor the old building. They were doing so well honoring the renovation of this building that the Strauss Historic Preservation Award was going to be presented to them in 2014. Uh They'd been working really hard at it and really trying to use historical accuracy with it. Mm -hmm. Since this award was very prestigious in an area that was so diligently trying to rebuild connections to its roots, in order to present the fullest possible history at the award ceremony, the Fechners set about uncovering more detailed history of the building in terms of the people and the activities that had been associated with the old building. So they worked with the Stralsund City Archivist to find the records that might shed light on the building's occupancy history. Their research revealed that the five-story building had originally been owned by brothers named Julius and Felix Blach, B-L-A-C-H, a family of leather merchants who ran the leather business from the ground floor. The upper levels of the building were divided into apartments occupied by various other members of the Bloch family. The Blochs had German roots that went back centuries, and the family also made up a part of the Stralsund area's active Jewish community. For nearly 60 years, the Blochs ran the leather shop and occupied the Heilgeiststrasse building. By 1938, the business was being run by Karl Philipp Bloch, who was the nephew of Julius, 
who had the original leather shop there. Well, we all know what was happening in Germany in the late 1930s. Mm -hmm. And as the Nazis were persecuting the Jewish population, the family was forced under Nazi duress to vacate the building. Carl Philip was terribly stricken by the loss of his family's history, and he wrote this passage in a local business chronicle. I cry to you, my deceased ancestors, that there is no fault on my part for the decline. I call to you that I have always tried to preserve your heritage, but that it had to give way to fate. He understood the loss he had been handed, and it broke his heart, but he was powerless to prevent it. Carl mm -hmm. Philip abandoned the building and the family's leather shop and fled with his family to Berlin. They were sent to a concentration camp, which Carl Philip survived, but at least 10 members of the extended family were murdered under the Nazi regime. These family members that were killed included four of his uncle Julius's children, Carl Philip's brother, two of Carl Philip's sons, Fearing for their lives and those of their children, many other family members had seen the writing on the wall and fled the country before they were sent to concentration mm -hmm. camps, ending up in various locations around the world, including the Netherlands, the U.S., Israel, and Brazil. Because the world was in total chaos at that time, they had no way to keep in touch with their scattering relatives, and over the years, even though there were some initiatives to help people find one another, they just never did. Mm -hmm. They all thought the others had been caught. They all thought that all of their relatives were dead and they were the last of the Bloch family to survive. I mean, so many families at that time, that was the case, you know? Yes. So why wouldn't you assume that's what happened? That's right. They just thought, oh, I'm the last of my line. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. So each of the survivors adapted to their new environment and grew where they had been planted. They married, they had children, they grew up, they grew older, all the while never knowing the fate of any of their family. Until 2014, when Friederike started her historical research, she found the history of the house having been in the Bloch family for 60 years. Then she found out why they had left and when. Mm -hmm. Then she started researching what had happened to them afterwards. She did deep dives into the records of what family members had fled to which countries and began to find that there were descendants living around the world. As she continued digging into the family, now she realized that she was on a mission. She discovered that one of Julius Bloch's sons had escaped to the U.S. in 1937, prior to the family leaving the building, mm -hmm. prior to the devastation subsequently inflicted upon their family. And since he had left prior to the war, there were better records, so she was able to trace where he went. Okay, that makes sense. Friederike set out to find out if this son, a lawyer by the name of Friedrich Bloch, and his wife Kate had any living descendants. A genealogist did a search for her and sent Friederike a manifest for the ship that had carried Friedrich and Kate to the U.S. in 1937, and she went so far as to find an email address for Friedrich's grandson, Casey Blake, who's a professor at Columbia University. But once she found the Blakes, she wanted to share with them the information about their family that they probably wouldn't have any way to know. She dug up birth, marriage, and death certificates. She took photos of the family graves in the local Jewish cemetery, and she made a genealogical chart for them to make sense of all the information. She felt that when Stralsund lost its Jewish population, it had lost a great deal of its history and its culture, and she wanted to restore some of it if she could. Mm -hmm. As the family, the Bloch family, the Bloch family descendants, and Friederike continued the work of finding Bloch descendants, it was discovered that over 40 blood relatives still survive around the world. They have last names including Blake, Oliver, Zuck, Levine, Weisshut, Glassman, and many others. 
They live across the world from one another, and some of them live just down the street from one another without ever knowing they were related. A small reunion of the Bloch descendants took place in 2018 at the German Embassy in London, and a global reunion was planned for Stralsund in 2020, but then it was canceled because of the pandemic. Oh, that's such a bummer. It was rescheduled for 2021 and was again canceled because the pandemic was still active. But Friederike is not one to give up. On August 18th through the 22nd, 2022, almost two dozen descendants of the Block brothers, Julius and Felix, held their reunion in Stralsund, 84 years after the family had been torn asunder by the Nazis. Eight years of tireless efforts had finally given this family its roots back. So the award that Friederike Fechner received at the beginning of this year, in 2022, was satisfying to her, mm-hmm. but it didn't mean as much as the difference that she had made in her town in the culture of her region, in the lives of these people who had been strangers to her. The number one question that she has asked when she lectures on the work that she's done is this, why are you doing this? She's not Jewish, Mm -hmm. she's not even from Stralsund. So people don't understand why she has put all this heart and soul into reuniting this family and making Mm -hmm. this building back into its former glory. She was born in Hanover. Her family never discussed the Holocaust, but she knew about it. She grew up feeling deeply ashamed of what her country and countrymen had done to an entire population, both as individuals and as vibrant cultural groups. When she's asked why she does this, mm-hmm. she sometimes quotes Elie Wiesel, who said in part, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. Her paraphrasing of that sentiment is also her answer. The most painful rejection of those innocent and individual victims would be continued refusal to remember and forgetting. Mm -hmm. We should never let that happen. And she lives her words. She went so far as to actually restore the Blach name to her house. On the front facade, she painted leather dealers and Blach brothers in German. And Friederike has done so much, not only for the Blach family, but for her efforts to bring back the influence the history, the social vitality, and the memory of so many Jewish families who were decimated just like the Bloch family were. And like you said, this happened to millions of people. Mm-hmm. Thousands of families were torn up like this. Yeah. Those families were also persecuted, chased away, murdered, and Friederike has illuminated the memories and importance of those who are no longer there to speak for themselves. And it gave this family, this particular family, mm-hmm. a place that they can call their roots. And they didn't have that before. And that's the story of Friederike Fechner. That's awesome. Who was doing all this, by the way, while she carried on her musical career as mm-hmm. a professional cellist and cello teacher. The fact that the right person came upon this building and cared. And well, also. it spoke to her. It spoke mm-hmm. to her when it was absolutely in ruins. And I've got a before and after photo of the building oh, yeah, that like she renovated that. and she just saw it and something about it spoke to her mm-hmm. so she just felt like it called to her mm-hmm. so both of these stories made us cry but at least there's a positive message at the end of kind of both of our stories yeah i'm just so disappointed and angry about martinsville and how they treated her pettiness of them not allowing the neils to place a monument is just horrifying and disgusting agreed Okay, let's finish up. You can find us on all social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at True Crime BNB. You can feel free, as always, to email us at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. Yes. Okay, since we both sobbed like 
little babies today, I, <laughs> I decided to go ahead and bring us something that might entertain us. I found a website called Inspirobot. And oh, it this says, sounds promising. Uh-huh. It says, I am an artificial intelligence dedicated to generating unlimited amounts of unique inspirational quotes. Hooray, let's go. Okay, so I'm going to click generate. Is it just a random thing? I think. Oh, beautiful. It even comes the random picture from like clip art okay. in the background. So our inspirational quote is, crowds exuberate what carnivores begin. Say that again? Crowds exuberate what carnivores begin. Sounds like That's, a zombie apocalypse to me. Yeah, it does. Great. Really kind of deep and scary. It, I don't like it. That's I don't like sure. it. I want a new one. Okay, we'll do another one. Oh, this one's nice. This one is a beautiful picture of a man diving into what appears to be a lake. All right. And it says, keep laughing or you'll be attacked. <laughs> Sometimes I get attacked when I am laughing. Could you imagine buying a poster of that and just hanging it in your bedroom? <laughs> okay, we're all done here. Guys, thank you for being here, and we'll be back next week for episode 36. Hooray! We can add! <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Okay. <gasps> Get back together. God damn it. Now you've set the tone. I'm sorry. You've set the tone. I'm feeling weepy and I can't even get through the first sentence. Our bloopers this week are just going to be us quietly sobbing and laughing together. She took families of the family on August 18th through the 22nd. So how are you today, babe? Lovely weather we're having. I, I, why why do don't you just say it? it? <laughs> Fuck you, Martinsville. Mm-hmm. You just inspired the zombie apocalypse.